Amen. I have something of a weak stomach. Um, if you're like me and have a weak stomach, you know what I'm talking about. There are certain things that I uh, can't see, certain things that I can't smell without getting an upset stomach or without it bothering me. And if you have a weak stomach or if you grew up having a weak stomach, then you can probably relate to what I consider one of my worst days in high school or one of my worst days of high school career. And I'm talking about uh, the day they like to call dissection day in biology. Uh, If you were in my age or my grade, it was dissecting frogs. And uh, dissecting frogs and dissection day was not... Uh, one of the high watermarks of my high school career. I, I think I've told you before that I was in an advanced biology class as a freshman, uh, biology two, and, and there were only two freshmen in there. Everyone else was upperclassmen. And I think I've already told you that on the day in that biology class, already being a freshman and being picked on and being singled out, on the day that we drew blood, that we had to take our own blood type, uh, I passed out. And I passed out uh, when I saw my blood and I fell and the needle that I was using stuck in my face. Um, and so and, and the sympathetic teacher that I had uh, gathered everyone around and they took a picture for the yearbook. So it was a... Uh, Biology was not a fun class. And so right after that, while I was trying to live up to that reputation, they announced that we would be dissecting frogs. And I knew, just saying dissecting frogs, I can smell formaldehyde. Do you all smell that? Uh, it just, it's like it just all comes rushing back. I knew it was not going to be a good day for me. I knew I was not headed for something uh, that was going to be memorable in my high school career. And, and, you know, and the day comes, and you know the day is there because everyone that has had biology during the day comes and talks about it. We got to cut open frogs and all that kind of stuff. You know, and there's always some uh, masochistic guy that cut one of the arms off the frog, and, you know, he's showing it to you. Look, I brought something back, you know, and, and I, I, my stomach was just going knots. And so I had biology after lunch. I decided to skip lunch. I would be fortified going into uh, the time that I had and going into my class, and I kind of steeled myself. Really, what I was trying to figure out in lunch was how can I get my mom to come and pick me up so I don't have to dissect a frog? I had an old trick that I could make my nose bleed. Uh, If I rubbed it real hard, it would just pour blood. And so I was trying to weigh the options of what was more embarrassing, not dissecting frogs or being in the cafeteria in high school and having your nose bleed everywhere. I decided to go to class. And and you knew it was the dissection day. You came to class. You walked to the door. And like I said, that formaldehyde smell just overwhelmed you. And my stomach was already queasy and uh, Luckily for me, I was matched together with two girls as my lab partners, and uh, they knew, I guess, as soon as I came in that I wasn't going to be any help. They uh, both looked at me. I guess I was green already and glassy-eyed and said, are you going to be okay? Is this going to be something you can do? And I just kind of said, I'll I'll watch. I'll stand back. You know, I was a tough guy. I will watch you guys do the dissection. Uh, So they went and one of them went over and picked up the frogs that you had to have and brought it over to our table. And about that time, my compassionate teacher, uh, came over with a garbage can from the class and he set it next to my uh, little workstation. He said, listen, Gunther, when you start to puke, hit the can. 
Uh, my reputation preceded me. And so I, and I have to tell you, from there, all I remember is him putting that there. And the rest of it was a blur. I can kind of remember them pinning the frog to the thing. And I remember them cutting it, uh, stuff coming out, and then pulling back the skin. I remember getting glassy-eyed. Uh, I remember the guys on the, the, the workstation next to us, one of them had pulled out the heart and the lungs, and they were tossing it back and forth and playing with it. Uh, and then everything just kind of got blurry. I, I can tell you that I did hit the can. Uh, then I hit the bathroom. And then I hit the bathroom again. Uh, and my reputation continued to go uphill from there. Uh, now I'll tell you all that because I decided to use that term dissection in the title of my message. And uh, it brought back a lot of painful memories for me to do that because uh, what it means to me to dissect. Now I understand and I recognize why they dissect things in school. You want to uh, pull back all of the layers. You want to strip away the things that are hiding what is important so that you can get to the root of the matter. You want to see what ticks, whether it's an earthworm. They dissect earthworms, I think, now, or whether it's a guinea pig. Some places do that. Uh, how horrible would that be? Uh, but, you know, or even a frog. And you, you want to get to the inside. And what I want to do this morning is dissect, strip away what it means to be a servant. See, all of us are called to be servants. The Bible is pretty clear that we're called to be a servant. Matter of fact, Jesus, when uh, was approached by the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and asked him who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, who would sit at his right hand, he said those words. The greatest will be the servant. The greatest of all the kingdom will be he who is a slave to others around him. And so all of us are called to be a servant. We're called to serve others. But, but why do we serve? What is at the heart? What is at the root of our service? If you, if you dissected why we do what we do, and you saw the video of the lady talking about her service, if, if you took away all of the things that motivate us to do why we do what we do, some of us do it out of guilt. We do it because we feel guilty. We do it out of because that's just what we feel like we're supposed to do. If, if I don't help down there, no one else will help. Or I'm a parent, so I guess I'm supposed to help in here. Sometimes we do it out of this sense of we're repaying God for what he's done. I guess I better go do this because God loves me and our misguided view of grace. And uh, if you strip all that stuff away, because you see that stuff doesn't continue. All of that stuff will fail. All of that stuff will drop away. Uh, you can't sustain being a servant because you feel guilty. Can't sustain serving somewhere and doing what God's called us to do uh, out of some sense of obligation or paying back God. So, so the question I want to ask this morning is what motivates a servant to keep serving? What is it that, that pushes them to serve even when it's not easy, even when no one else is doing it, even when no one else sees or knows what they're doing? See, last week we talked about the church and we talked about what a healthy church looked like. And at its foundation, at its root, a healthy church is motivated to worship, to, to get to know, to have an intimate relationship with God. That, that goes without saying. But we also discovered that to be a healthy church, it meant that the body, the body of Christ, had to exercise. Just like your physical body, if you're not exercising, if you're not eating right, you won't be healthy. And the church is the same way. If we are not exercising, using our gifts, using what God has called us, what God has given us to minister both inside the body and outside the body, then we won't be healthy. And there are a lot of unhealthy churches because there's a lot of people letting a few people do all the service. 
Paul talked in Ephesians last week about how a healthy body comes together like, like joints and, and limbs and, and how it stretches. And he said it's a beautiful thing to see the body working together. To see it all, everyone filling in and doing what their role is. And I talked last week about how God doesn't necessarily gift individuals as much as he gifts the church. You see, everything that God calls us to do as a church, he brings people to this church to do those things. Sometimes, and I tell people this, and I say, well, I'm going from this church to that church because this church didn't have what I was looking for. It didn't have what I wanted offered. Sometimes... Maybe you need to think that the reason that church doesn't have what you're looking for is because you were the one who was supposed to start it. Or you were the one who was supposed to do it in the first place. You're not going to find it somewhere else because God's called you to be there, part of the body. And so this morning I thought what we would do is we would strip away, we would dissect all of those reasons, all of those motivations to get to the root of what is at the heart of a servant. Now, Jesus is the perfect example of a servant's heart. The Bible tells us that he lived. He didn't come to, to rule. He came to serve. That's why he exampled, why he, he lived out this idea that you and I are called to serve in everything that we do. But if, if you get away from Jesus, probably the closest example that we have in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who was the church starter, the persecutor of churches before he had the road to Damascus experience with the Holy Spirit, he, he was zealous, but he was always known as a servant. You see, when you think about Paul, when I was younger, and I used to think about Paul, I used to think about this go-getter. I thought about, you know, we always want to pick, I thought like Billy Graham in Rhodes, right? That he was just going down, and he was starting churches left and right, and he was preaching the word, and nobody got in his way, and he was, you know, had this agenda, and he had this vision, and he had this call. But that's just the opposite of what Paul was like. See, if you read and you begin to discover who he was and look at some of his writings and look at some of the things he said, he was a servant at heart. Matter of fact, there's not a letter that he starts, that he writes to individuals or churches, that he doesn't start out with these words, Paul, your servant, Paul, a servant. Sometimes he even goes so far as to say, Paul, a slave or a bond slave, dunamis, dunamis. The, the word for slave. I am a doulos for Christ. A servant for Christ. Now I want you to think about that. Here's Paul who had every right to have a title. I mean, he, he's the preacher. He, he's the starter of churches to Gentiles. He could have written his letters and said, hey, it's me, Paul. You know who I am. Hey, it's Paul, the guy who started this church. Because all the churches he writes, he founded them. Hey, you remember me. I was the one who has been persecuted. I was the one. He doesn't start out any of those things. He says, I, Paul, your servant. So if there's anyone that we could look at this morning to dissect his heart, I think it would be the Apostle Paul. And so I want to look at a few of his writings, a few things that he says, and suggest to you what I think is at the heart of a real servant, someone who serves not because everyone's looking, not because it's expected, not because that's what people do, but someone who serves because it's who they are. Because they've recognized that Jesus Christ calls them to service, that the greatest in God's kingdom will be the one who humbles himself and serves. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians. 
It's on the blue sheet. I gave it there for you so you can kind of follow along, uh, so we can kind of get into some of it. And, and it's real simple and it's real easy. Uh, Paul writes this letter to the Corinthian church, and, and we're going to get more into the church at Corinth. I'm going to start a new series in July looking at the church at Corinth. You know, the church at Corinth was a mess. It, it was if you could pick a church that was the biggest mess in, in the New Testament world, it was the church at Corinth. They, had, they were fighting over who was in charge. They were fighting over leadership. They were fighting over who was deacons. There was dissension. There was conflict. There was church splitting. They were even fighting over Paul. Some of them saying Paul wasn't worthy. Paul didn't know what he was doing. And here Paul, with the apostle's heart, writes to the church at Corinth. And as he writes, he, he comes out, first of all, explaining how he is coming to them. Now, I want you to understand, Paul could come at the Corinthian church that he founded and say, I'm sick of your mess. Don't you understand uh, what I came and what I sought to do? And, and, you know, don't you understand how you're messing up all the message that Jesus had and uh, how you're ruining the church and our reputation? He could have done all those kind of things, which is probably what many of us would have done. You know, when somebody that, that we love is messed up or is messing up or is making a mistake, our first reaction is not always the best. But Paul hit it right on the head because he identified what his heart was about. So I want you to listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. For chapter 1 is more of an introduction why he's writing and what the purpose of the letter is. And then chapter 2 he gets to the heart. He says, When I came to you, brothers, when I started the church, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. For I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Now, when you read that, you can automatically say, well, he's being modest here. Paul, you know, is just trying to be, you know, this false humility. But that's who he was. In First Thessalonians and Second Corinthians, second letter, he says this. Some say about me, but my letters are weighty and forceful. But in person, I'm unimpressive and my speaking amounts to nothing. You see, the thing I like about Paul is Paul knew who he was. He was comfortable in his own skin. He didn't try to be something that he wasn't. You see, the first key to dissecting a servant's heart is understanding that a servant has this transparent humanity. See, Paul's not only admitting that he doesn't have it all together, but he's not trying to hide, not trying to disguise it. Paul comes and says, basically, guess what? I don't know everything. When I came to you, I was weak and I was trembling and I didn't have all the answers. But all I knew was I was going to try to do what God called me to do. You see, that's the heart of a servant. They are transparent. They're real. They're honest about themselves. You admit that Paul says, I'm not polished. I make mistakes. I'm not perfect. You see, someone with a servant's heart is always transparent. See, Paul had a great view of himself. He didn't carry himself around as someone special or someone who had it figured out. Today we'd call someone like that authentic. And I think that word gets misused because everyone in church is always saying, oh, we're trying to search for somebody that's authentic. But I think he foots the bill. Paul was the real deal. Because you see, I think when you ran into Paul, you were so unimpressed about Paul that the only thing you remembered when you left was how much Jesus was in Paul. Because, see, Paul was just honest. 
Didn't try to get you to put your faith in him. Didn't try to get you to trust him. Didn't try to get you to be convinced by him. He resolved that he was going to be about nothing but Jesus Christ. He was real. He was honest. I don't have all the answers. I make mistakes. And to be a servant, if we're ever going to reach out to other people, we have got to be transparent. Paul, all throughout his letters, continues this self-depreciating idea. I mean, in Romans, that's all Romans is about. He calls himself the chief of sinners. He says, don't you understand? I am the worst of the worst. And it wasn't just words that he put on. His actions backed it up. You see, for some reason today, we struggle when people are transparent. We have a tough time. We are uncomfortable when people are real, when people open up about who they are. Most of the time, it's because we struggle with being transparent. And when we see it in others, it bothers us. And I'm not talking about sharing everything that's going on in your life. I'm just talking about being real. Not putting on a show. Not trying to be something that you're not. You see, we are much more comfortable, it seems, in the church when everyone acts like they've got it all together. See, we're much more comfortable when everyone acts like everything is perfect. Had a great week. We've got it all figured out. But you can't sustain that. And I see it in our church attitudes when when I've gone on mission trips and when I've gone doing mission projects. You see, what what happens is so many in the church come across as as we are trying to help you. We are are trying to reach down to to be something for you. You know, we're, we're trying to share Jesus with you. That's not the attitude those people need. See, it's not a matter of reaching down. It's a matter of reaching across. See, Paul would never say, listen, this is what you need to get done. Paul would say, listen, I'm right there with you. I struggle. I know how you get in fights. I know how these things happen in church. I understand. See, there's a difference in the way we communicate between compassion and and passion and arrogance. See, we sometimes act like we're doing other people a favor because we've got it all figured out. Let me help you. See, people don't need us to speak down to them or reach down to them. They need us to reach across to them. And people want to hear that you're real and that you don't have it all together and that you are not trying to help somebody figure it out. You are trying to help you and them figure it out together. See, we've got to come to a place where we can be real where we can be honest. One of the things that I committed when I surrendered to minister over 30 years ago is that I was just going to try to be transparent. I was just going to try to be honest. What you see is what you get. Try to be real. And you know what drove that? I grew up in church. I grew up in a large church. And I can remember being a junior in high school. Uh, and, it, and it's so real to me today because it was so blowing. It blew me away. I, we were out working on a mission project. And I've told some people this before. Out, out in the church. And it was a Saturday, and our pastor pulled up. And when the pastor pulled up, he got out of the car. He was wearing shorts and a baseball hat. And it blew me away to see my pastor wear shorts and a baseball cap. Because I didn't think preachers dressed like that. I thought, you know, they sat around the house in their coat and tie. Or I thought, they, you know, be, let's be honest. It was the 70s, and I thought, you know, he's got a baseball cap on. Oh, my gosh. And the rest of the youth were doing the same thing. Did you see, Pastor? He had a hat on. And it got so down to me is that somehow we we put people on platforms, and we make them so unrealistic. We think that they have all the answers. And in doing so, we put expectations on them. 
them. They've got to have the perfect family and they've got to have the perfect kids. And so we put expectations on all of those things instead of letting them be real and honest. See, what I've learned is the higher that you place somebody on the platform, the harder they fall when they don't live up to what you expect out of them. And so I committed myself. I want to be honest. I, I want to be real. And sometimes people don't like that. I want you to understand I struggle. I make mistakes. I'm not perfect. It's funny to me that, that some of the criticism I get is from just being real. And, and, you know, a couple of months ago, I was joking over the winter, I grew a beard and like most people up here do, to try to stay warm. Those of you summer people don't relate, but it gets cold up here. And so I grew a full beard. And I was joking around at the end of one of the services, and I said, uh, you know, I'm going to have to shave the beard because my wife told me there was no more loving until the beard came off. And if someone came up a week, two weeks later and said they were offended. Said, you know, that kind of talk doesn't have anything to do in the, in the pulpit. And I thought, listen, I'm, sometimes I can be uh, pretty confrontational. I said, if that was what offended you, then you didn't listen to anything else I said because I said some far more offensive things. <laughs> and I'm not saying that to be me. I'm just saying some, we, it's, we need to be real. We need to understand one another. And, and when you're a servant, you can't serve from up here to somebody down there. That's why Jesus always said to be a servant, you had to get on their level. When Jesus washed their feet, he got down on his knees because he recognized that I'm just like you. And you see, the, the heart of a servant is someone that is honest and real and transparent. You can't be open and transparent in church, then where can you be? See, Paul said, my heart is honesty and openness. Genuine transparent humanity, real. Second thing that he had, look what, we'll continue reading, it says verse 4, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on a man's wisdom, but on God's power. Now that's bold words coming from a preacher. Because you know what he's saying? He's saying, I know sometimes my words get jumbled up. He said, I know my ability is not all that important. But what is important is that the Spirit of God is speaking to you. You see, the thing that we sense in Paul is he had this genuine humility. Not only was he transparent, but he was humble. He recognized his limitations. He recognized that it wasn't about his personality or his persuading people or his name or his reputation. It was about Christ. Said Christ and Christ alone. See, Paul didn't care if he got recognition. Paul didn't care if they put his name on the church or, or put a plaque to Paul. Paul said, I'm not interested in any of that. I'm not interested in being the best preacher or, or the most famous preacher or having the wittiest comments or, or the best illustrations. Paul said, what I'm interested in is you knowing about Jesus. See, I'm so worried. I talked about consumer-driven mentality we have in the church today. And we have these image-conscious leaders that, that are the, the package deal. And you see them coming out of seminary and they think they've got to look a certain way and they've got to talk a certain way and they've got to act a certain way. And what happens is, is they draw a following to a leader instead of a following to Jesus. And people start following people and put people on pedestals. And all of a sudden those people become what the church is about. Paul said, I'm going to hide behind the cross so that when you walk away from me, you may remember my bumbling and my stumbling, but what you're going to remember is Jesus. You see, the true measure of humility is not, is not you telling people how humble you are. 
It's not do people walk away talking about you. Do people walk away talking about the Jesus in you? See, the true test is not how many people follow you. The true test is how many people walk away from you becoming more intimate with Jesus Christ. See, Paul was humble, not because it was something he said, but because that's who he was. He walked in humility during good times and bad times, during prosperity, during persecution. He always stayed humble. It wasn't an act. Chuck Swindoll, one of his books labeled a, a test to see where we are with humility. He said it's just a two-question two test on where we are with our humility. He said the first thing is, you can tell if someone's humble, does someone have a non-defensive spirit? Is someone defensive about everything or are they not defensive? Because, see, a humble person will realize it's not about what I want or my agenda or my things. I'm just trying to do what God. So I'm open to accountability. I'm open to being questioned. I'm not defensive. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. It's not about my agenda. Do they have a non-defensive spirit? And the second thing he says, are they sensitive to everyday needs? Now, that can get kind of catchy because I know a lot of people that try to get to meet a bunch of needs, but they do it for the wrong reason. You see, what, what Chuck Swindoll says is the true humble person meets needs every day just out of a sense of seeing and hearing them. They don't have to be told so-and-so's hungry. They already know it. They don't have to be told so-and-so is hurting. They already know it. It's in their heart. You can't pull them away. They don't have to go and, and, and list all the things that they do on Facebook so you can give them credit. They do it just because that's who they are. They do it because that's their nature. They do it because they're called to be humble and seek God. No one may ever know. No one may ever see the works of a true servant. But the Bible says those people are the greatest that's why when we get to heaven, people always talk about rewards in heaven. And people say, well, you know, who's going to get the greatest reward? Is, you know, is Billy Graham going to be up there and get some rewards? I think he'll get some rewards for his servanthood, for his obedience. You know who I think is going to be the top tier in heaven? The people, it's going to be the, the people that spent a lifetime praying. That teacher that, that no one ever recognized that bought shoes for the kids in her class that couldn't afford them and, and loved on those kids when no one else would. And no, no one ever gave them flowers. No one ever called them on a platform. They just did it because they saw needs and they loved people and they reached out. They didn't have to be patted on the back. They just did it because of Jesus. Jesus said, who will be the greatest? He did serve. I think if you opened up Paul's heart...